From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Join me as we continue our discussion on Between the World and Me. That's next on The Public Morality. As we continue our discussion on Ta-Nehisi Coates' tour de force Between the World and Me, my first guest is Dr. George Cummings, theologian and pastor of Amani Community Church in Oakland, California. And in the spirit of full disclosure, Dr. Cummings was also my systematic theology professor as well as other courses at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Dr. Cummings, welcome to the public rally. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brother William. You know, I, I want to start by by asking you to, through your lens as a theologian, someone who's particularly interested in theology and the African-American religious and cultural traditions, why do you think Between Me and the World has garnered so much attention? Uh, because I think the Ta-Nehisi Coates writes uh, brilliantly about his own experience and communicates in a most uh, poignant sense uh, what it means to be a black man growing up during the time that he grew up and its impact upon his life and is its impact upon those around him. And um, he his his writing uh, communicates that experience in a very powerful way, and I think it impacts everybody who reads it in the, in that kind of way. It, it brings out uh, the 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 the, ten, the timber, the, the 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 experience in a way that um, a lot of other writings did not. Um, I would say that um, his writing, in some ways, reminds me of the first time that I read uh, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. Um, it, it, it touched on an experience that uh, I had had that I could identify and put my finger on and immediately connect with. Well, we, we, I'm going to mention that later, but I, I think all of us, uh, if nothing else, would love to have a book where Toni Morrison not only says it's a must-read, but it reminds her of James Baldwin. I think we'd all like to write that book. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, but... Uh, specifically about the book, and, and, and you already opened by talking about uh, Coates' writing style. Talk to me how he uses the body as this sort of continuing narrative that goes through this letter from start to finish. Right, and I think I think that's part of what makes it powerful. He he moves our attention away from the ideas of white supremacy, racism, and how they affect. Um, generally speaking, the African-American community to a more specific focus around the body. And that is tremendously important because um, in this regard, he is absolutely correct that woven into the narrative of American history and American traditions is uh, the denigration of the black body not just of uh, African people in general, but the black body. Um, and uh, in a way that uh, unless we focus our attention on the body, hands, feet, face, necks, um, literally the black body, um, it does not quite capture uh, the experience of those people who have been the victims of racism or white supremacy from that point of view. Um, it's one thing to talk about uh, what it meant to uh, to labor in the cotton fields, but it's another thing to to talk about 
what that did to your back. Mm. What it meant, uh, for example, in um, in the book and then the movie um, Twelve Years a Slave for for Patsy to pick five hundred pounds of cotton a day. What that did to her hands. Uh, that's what I mean. And 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 and, and the fact that for white people. The body, the black body, was not important enough for them to think about what that was doing to a human being. That they were simply using these black bodies to achieve their purposes. You, you know, when I when I when I hear you say it like that, first of all, I'm thinking, oh, this is a. I see another class that Dr. Cummings can teach called on, just on the body. But <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, but but what I was thinking is 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 you were are beautifully articulating that was back in the 40s when um, many of the cabarets would not allow Billie Holiday to sing Strange Fruit yep. and getting back to um, sort of putting the body front and center that, that, that created so much tension that you just, she just couldn't sing the song. Yes, yes. Well, I think, I think that's the same uh, kind of uh, use of the image of the black body that um, terrifies, actually, terrifies um, America because... Of our history, um, it is appropriate that um, a brother like Tanahisi Coates, in this historical time, when um, you have a situation with a uh, Michael Ferguson who is shot down and his body is left lying in the streets, call our attention to how in America the black body is devalued, and I really think that that is the power of the book and the power of the Black Lives Movement, which has lifted up once again um, the fact that the black body has not been valued in America. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Black Lives Movement because uh, given given so much work that you've been doing around Operation Ceasefire uh, uh, with, with the PICO Network, Explain, and we're going to come back to uh, uh, the book specifically. Yeah. But, but but explain uh, when you hear, uh, well, Black Lives Matter, well, all lives matter, Black Lives Matter. You know, they, they need leadership. Black Lives Matter. What it's about? Explain uh, to us what Black Lives Matter really is. Well, I, I, you know, I'm 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 uh, in the process of uh, reading a book entitled. The half has not been told. Yes, I know that book. Yes. Yes. And um, the power of that book, much like the power of Isabella Wilkinson's book, um, Wants of Other Signs, is that they depict in powerful graphic ways the way in which now for hundreds of years the black body has been devalued. And I think that the power of the Black Lives Matter movement is not at all to um, articulate a notion that does that suggests that other other lives don't matter. But in a society and in a time in which it is very clear, based on the violence to black bodies that is occurring, that um, black lives don't matter, never mattered in America. And um, as a matter of fact. That message ought to be lifted up, and I think that's the power of the black. That's part. That's a big part of what young people are saying in that movement. That Black Lives Matter. They're saying that in this society, where it is a fact that Black lives have not mattered, 
that um, it is important to lift up the notion that black di- black lives do matter in a way that calls attention to what has happened. Let me ask you, and, and um, this is the second week in a row that, that I've had uh, people on to talk specifically about uh, between between me and the world. I, I made a slip the other day, and my inner Tupac came out, and I said, "Me against the world." So you know, I got to. <laughs> <laughs> but but but. Um, I've asked this question, this will be the third time I've asked this question, and I've gotten three different answers. So I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for your response. Okay. When you read uh, Between Me and the World and he referenced the Dreamers, what did you think? Well, I mean, what I thought about was, well, I thought about my, my parents. I thought about my parents and my aunts who emigrated here from the Caribbean because they believed that in America you could have a better life. And they were particularly interested for in having a better life for their children. So they made sacrifices in order to do that. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, thought, I thought to myself, I mean, I know these people, these people who um, believe in the ideals of America, of American society, and who see in American society... Uh, possibility of fulfilling um, dreams that have been um, lifted up about the way things could be, about how you can live. If you work hard, you can get a home, you can have a job, you can take care of your children, um, and and you can, you know, drive a nice car. And I think, I mean, I think those dreams uh, were valuable as a way of motivating people and uh so i didn't i I wasn't particularly um troubled by his reference to it now the 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 problem of course with the dream and the dreamers is that um for the most part for many of our people and that is to say african-american people those dreams have been stifled for far too long and um our ability to achieve that dream those dreams have have been uh, left along the way, um, and so, so I, I thought to myself uh, again, this is a reflection of uh, the real experience of of people in the African American community, and uh, I mean he he is clearly um, calling into question the viability of the dream and of what it is dreamers want in the same way I think that Malcolm X once said, you know, why do you want to be a part of a burning house? Right. Right. Uh, you know, it's interesting you say that, and um, and I, I, I want to play with that just a little bit because, mm-hmm. because in, one, in one sense, you're calling in the question the dream. Yeah. Um, and then one could take a cynical approach and say, well, well, well wait a minute. You know, everybody living in Baltimore going through that uh, environment doesn't end up becoming a national correspondent for the Atlantic Mag- for Atlantic Magazine and getting a national bestseller. So, how do you reconcile those? I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, so so that's part of the, the 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 deadly dilemma I call it of living in America. That uh, for, for for those of us who come from um, communities that have been marginalized the fact of the matter is that in american society we have the possibility of achieving i mean there is the real possibility of achieving uh whether you come from 
inner city Baltimore or inner city New York or inner city Oakland. It's possible. Um, given certain circumstances and uh, maybe a little bit of luck and a lot of faith and prayer and hard work uh, to achieve uh, uh, status and achieve uh, wealth and achieve uh, um, accomplishments in American society in a way that it is not true in many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And so the dilemma is that there's the there is the, um, the, the 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 beauty and the fruit and the the um, the hope that is lifted up before us of this great possibility, and yet um, even as some strive for it, they are they are are are, are defeated, um, and uh, they are unable to achieve it because of so many obstacles that are set in their way. And so, I, you know, I think. I think that that is that is really part of the dilemma that we see in the African American community all the time that there are people who in some ways achieve against all odds some people achieve because uh conditions dispose them to achieve you know they have parents who worked and parents who had hopes and parents who paid their way through school and parents who helped them to believe in the possibility of something different. Um, and then you have lots of people who don't have those kinds of possibilities. And um, the fact that you have parents who who are hard workers and who um, provide you with the kind of motivating ideas as a child for you to succeed does not necessarily in America mean that you will. Um, and and we we have seen all that all too often uh, in our work with young men in the community, young black men in particular. I was um, I was struck, and so just continue along this thread uh, of just that that difficulty, that sort of dichotomy. That uh, it was also brought up that if if there was a criticism, one person said to me, if there was a criticism, uh, was that. The, he didn't acknowledge, and I'd like to hear your perspective on this. He didn't acknowledge his privilege. Or did you think he did acknowledge his privilege? Or does he have an obligation to acknowledge his, the privilege that he has? Right. I mean, so Byron, this is uh, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like you know, people <laughs> who criticize a movie because the movie didn't tell somebody else's story. <laughs> I mean, it's his book. He 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 wrote the book from his point of view. Well, before you continue, let me just say this: I've known you long enough that when you said Byron that way, I felt like I was back in class. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. And I didn't mean to. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. I hear you. And I, I, even when I said that, I I, I was like, oh man, you're, no, you're no, the it, professor is speaking now. Yeah, he is. That's why I want the professor to speak. I, that's why. That's why. I called Dr. Cummings. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I you know, I I think I think that from Tanahisi Coates' location, the time in which he grew up, the time in which he's thinking about these issues, the time in which he writes this book, um, explains in great part why he articulates it with the passion that um seems to not be willing to acknowledge or be optimistic about what is possible in America. 
and there are many, I mean, I work with many young men in the ceasefire work, and the majority of them, I mean, I have had, I have been in focus groups with almost uh, 50 now over the last year, and the majority of them, the thing that strikes me about them is the profound hopelessness that they see for their futures. They don't see that they have a future for themselves. So I think that's the time in which Coates is living. And when you see young black men and women's bodies dropping in the communities, um, it can put you in a place which makes you deeply pessimistic about uh, the possibilities for us in America. And I think that's where he is. Um, and I don't think, I personally don't think that he should have felt obligated to acknowledge um, that um, at the same time, um, living in America offers the potential for the kind of achievement that uh, is incredible and amazing. I mean, I was just reading uh, Forbes magazine yesterday about... Um, this brother, a uh, black man who is uh, uh, on the list as a new billionaire, um, you know, and uh, I'm like, I mean, that's possible. Mm-hmm. It happened in America. We- and and this cannot happen in many, in most parts of the world, this cannot happen. Right. It's sort of like I've always said that whatever we say, uh, it's unlikely that the next prime minister from Great Britain will be of Jamaican heritage. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or in Saudi Arabia. Right. I mean, it's just not possible. Or, or, you know, and so, so, so it's, it's both the, I think it's what Martin Luther King appreciated, and that is that um, America offers both the hope and the uh, disappointment of uh of a place that uh in which it might be possible to um create harmonious prosperity for all and uh so there's a possibility and then there's the disappointment yeah. and um that's part of the dilemma of what it means to live in america i i listen man I travel all over the world. And I tell people all the time, I tell people all the time, that when I step foot in my country, America, most of the time, wherever I've been, I am so happy to be home. And I'm a black man who is deeply critical of America. <laughs> and that has to do with the values that we lift up. That um, they don't always work right, but, but some of those values uh, create a kind of a space in which it's possible to hope and be optimistic. And I think, I, I mean, I think that's missing in the book, in, in, because, but he's not trying to tell that story. Right. Well, you, you, you know, I mean, I always, um, we're going to get to the city when you sort of raised it. I, I mean, I've defined the book as a personal polemic. So right there, I mean, you have to give validity to how someone else sees the world. Exactly. Between me and the world. <laughs> Not between us and the world. But <laughs> I mean, that says it all to me. <laughs> I'm telling my son what's between me and the world. Right, right. Well, well let me ask you this, because one of, one of the um, – uh, here, here we had a, um, 
a group of us came together at, at, at a coffee shop and discussed the book ad nauseum. Um, and one of the things that came up um, was the criticism that um, he, he didn't give specifics. He didn't give answers. And I'm like, it's a personal polemic. But, but, but beyond that, do you see as a strength of a weakness that he created space so while he's talking specifically to his son, there is some space. I, I would imagine that George Cummings could fit in, that Byron Williams could fit in, and so on and so forth. Do you see that as a strength or a weakness to the book? Oh, I think that's a strength of the book. I, 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 you know, I think that there are lots of people and lots of communities that are afraid of um, conflict. They are afraid of conflicting opinions. And yet, in my mind, it is in the midst of that conflict that we are able to find a better way. Uh, if 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 we don't have those voices that uh, that challenge us and, and and call into question what it is we are about, uh, a lot of people never find an opportunity to begin to question themselves. And so, I think that the book creates a space for a conversation and that's what that's that's why i think it contributes to the conversation it contributes to an ongoing conversation about this ongoing project that we call america because that's what it is it's an ongoing project and um i mean i mean we we you know um the america we are becoming is what our the founding fathers hoped for I mean, they recognized that it was it was an America becoming, and it, the only way for it to become is that um, those voices, those voices that are oppositional, that are critical, um, and Coates stands in a long tradition of of of, of African American people, David Walker and others, Henry Highland Garnett, who boldly and loudly articulated uh, 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 their perspective in a way that challenged us to continue to think about this project. What is it that we hope for? What is it that we dream, and how do we get there? And so I think it's a wonderful, wonderful contribution to the conversation in that regard. Let, let me let me ask you this, uh, because I've defined it, and, and, and feel free to offer a different uh, uh uh, understanding or viewpoint, but I've defined it, uh, put my cards there, as a personal polemic. That, but the problem with a personal polemic on race, it seems to me that, that everybody has their own personal polemic. So, so, but race is so touchy. I, I think I question sometimes: Do we know how to what to do with a book like this? Because he's telling his story, but yet we want to see it through the lens of our story, where, wherever our particular station may be. How, how do you see that? Well, I, you know, so it's like I, it's like this. I think that everybody ought to tell their own poetic story. I think it's a fundamental right that we should write poetry about our experience. But that doesn't mean that all our poetry is going to be saying the same thing or will share the same values. And part of the challenge of what it means to live in a democratic society is that um, voices are going to be different voices, and so it is. A, it, it, I think you're right. It is a personal polemic, 
And he is very clear. I'm writing this to my son. I'm allowing you to sit in on this conversation that I'm having. It's a very public conversation that I'm having with my son. I'm telling my son what are the things he needs to take note of and learn from as he moves forward and grows uh, into adulthood in this, in this world. And uh, he says, you know, that's what I'm doing, and uh, it is unashamedly personal in this regard. Now, to that extent, I think, I mean, he is being faithful to his own, his own calling and his own sense of what it, it is was, that was important to him. Um, his son is important to him, and um, he's sharing with us his thoughts. And I think that's what good writing does. I think that's what good writing does. And uh, so I, I think we, 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 we tap into the conversation where we can. I think it is, I, 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 if I were him, I wouldn't be upset about criticisms of the book. You know, I'd say to others, you know, go write your own book. You know, write it from your point of view. I'm writing it from my perspective. You know, I, you know, I often say when I speak, you know, I spoke at a Presbyterian mission conference last Saturday in Los Angeles. And like I do when I encounter new audiences, I always begin with my classic, my primary reality is the fact that I'm a black man living in America. A black man who's a heterosexual, also a believer in Christ. And I say all that to say, and I say to them, I say this to say that, you know, I am woefully rooted in my own historical experience. That means that sometimes there are things that I am blind to, and there are other things that I am deeply, deeply rooted in. And I just want you to know that. So let's go. <laughs> and I feel like that's what Tanahisi did for us. He said, "Look, I'm, you know, I'm talking to my son. I'm talking to my son out of my own experience, and there, there are certain things I want him to know. And while I talk to him, I invite you to listen. I think that's wonderful." Given our tragic history on race, do you think we spend too much time being heard as opposed to listening? Like, in this case, we were listening to Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, but, but any pushback, is it, do you think it's the result of wanting to be heard more than really listen to what was, in this case, being said? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of times that is the case, um, that that too often we are not listening. And, uh, and in America, listening to black people talk about their experience and how that experience ought to inform our common life is not something that is easily done. I mean, you know, white people do not like listening to us talk about that's why they get nervous you know when as soon as we start talking about race i mean it, it you know it makes them nervous because because the fact of the matter is that this is the stuff they don't want to listen to and yet um i would argue that we must listen to the voices of the victims we must listen to the voices of those who have been victimized, because I think those voices have something to say to us about how we ought to live our lives. I get, you know, I get tired of, I've gotten tired. I mean, I'm 62, and I've gotten tired. You know, I tell white people all the time, I say, you know, it's not my job to fix you or fix your racism. It is not my job. Uh, because, you know, you guys, <laughs> I mean, you do a whole bunch of other stuff when you want to. 
and I spent a lifetime talking to you about it, and most of the time you don't want to hear it. So don't waste my time no more. Which leads to my next question. Perfect, perfect segue. And it's something the coach does in the book, and I, and and um, I, I, I would imagine, depending on who you are, what your station is, it would cause some discomfort. But he really raises whiteness as a social construct. I think that his actual term was those who see themselves as white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, I mean, and I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. How so? Well, because... Because I think, I think, in in a way, he 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 raises the question about how it's a broader question of how race is a social construct. Period. And the implications of that acknowledgement, that an understanding of race that is rooted in the color of our skin is simply not enough. If we really want to move beyond um, our divisions, we have to think in new ways about what it means to be a human community. In, in essence, to construct a new understanding of race. That, I would say, is inclusive, not exclusive. And that's the key word, inclusive, not exclusive. Because our understanding of race as it is, as it was constructed in the belly of white supremacy is around color. Hmm. And, 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 and we will, we will never get past it unless A, we acknowledge that, acknowledge that it's a social construct. And then begin to say, now what? Where do we really want to go? What do we really want to be? And I think that 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 in America there, there is a again our society offers a, a kind of a beautiful opportunity if we take it for people of different ethnicities and races to begin to see themselves on a common journey to see the common values that we share as human beings. And we won't ever get there unless we begin to acknowledge the differences within our experiences. When you talk so about, I think it's sorry. a brilliant move on his part. When you talk about differences, and, 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 and um, I don't know if you read it or not, but I think this you can still uh, uh, answer this question. Uh, uh, David Brooks wrote a column in the New York Times, and... And this sentence really struck me, and I, I, I want to get your response to it. He was what he did was he turned around and wrote a letter to to Coates, just like Coates had written one to his fifteen year old son. Which I think it's a different thing. One thing to write to your sons, another thing to write peer to peer. You end up being condescending. But he talks about the book and he says it's a mind altering account of the ba- the male black experience. Period. It, 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 and I kind of felt that was a way of not having to deal with what you just said. Yeah. This this book is it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I I mean, I I realized after I talked with you that I had read the article in the New York Times um, when it first came out, um, the op-ed piece. Yes. Yes. And um, I I it struck me then that that um, as a white man, um, he was Brooks was faced with the dilemma that happens to people who are privileged when they 
encounter something that calls into question their privilege. So he, in this case, wanted to acknowledge the um, the distinctive contribution of the book, but nevertheless, it made him feel uncomfortable. And so then it was necessary to also uh, provide provide a kind of a critical perspective on it. And um, and I think that's that that is the that is the the challenge of of uh i think that is the challenge of of white america in in the face of the evolution of our society so i i interact all the time with in pico in my denomination in 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 the academy with a lot of older white men a lot of white men who are looking over their shoulders now wondering where do i fit Okay, so I am white, I'm male, obviously a part of the most privileged sector of American society. What does that mean for me? And a lot of times they aren't sure. And um, I think that's that's what I sense in, in that insecurity is, is what I sense in Brooks's, Brooks' comments. When you say they aren't sure, uh, is it because, you know, you can surmise here, is it because... Their privilege has not has afforded them not to have to even think about it. I mean, I mean, I, I think you have to think about it. I think I have to think about it. Absolutely, <laughs> every day. I mean, it was kind of it, it was kind of like it was kind of like what happened in, in to use a, an example of in South Africa when when the ANC uh, was um, was uh, legalized or you know brought back into the conversation and ran for office. I, I I was going to South Africa in 1992, and um, sitting next to me was a South African, white South African, and he, the whole, I mean, it was a long flight, and so we had to talk, and he, his whole thing was, you know, I've been, yeah, I've been in the United States, I've been looking around to see where I want to move, because, you know, when black people take over in South Africa, you know, they're going to want to destroy us. And um, so his thing was, uh, where can I find a haven to out of that country because these people obviously are going to want to and and there was a lot of anger in South Africa among black people still is but uh Nelson Mandela led that transition in a incredibly powerful way acknowledging that uh the white people who had been there in South Africa were also South Africans and citizens and that uh the future was one in which they had to work together with black people alongside rather than uh and that and that and that the whole business of revenge and um was not going to be a valuable way forward so so i think some of that fear that that fear about i mean that's what i see um in a couple of the networks where i work with uh where we are doing some real close work around the issue of race okay so we're not just talking about it we're asking hard questions how many managers, how many directors, how many staff do you have of color? If you are working in primarily, predominantly communities of color, why don't you have staff of color? And we want we want to know, uh, you know, what are your numbers? How can we change that? How can we recruit and retain people who can change that picture? And uh, And furthermore, there are implications for, whether or not you're willing to change. If you don't want to change, 
then we're saying to some people, you know, it may be that this organization is not for you because this organization has a commitment to racial justice as, and racial equity as central to our work and central to our identity. So, so then we, we have all these older white guys who are like, you know, uh, you know, you know, how do I fit in? And I think uh, that that insecurity is is present, and um, I think it's valid for them to ask the question, and then we can go forward mm-hmm. and work together. Um, so that is the nature of it's unfortunately. Or fortunately, that is the nature of what it means to live in the kind of society where we lift up the notion of democracy. It is messy. It is hard to implement in certain sectors of our community, like the church, where people want to defend themselves by using God and God's word. But if you are in a community where, you know, we all come to the table, we all come to the table with our different interpretations, and then from that point of view, we work together to figure out figure out what kind of communities do we want, what kind of values do we want to live by, what kind of things do we want to value as we move forward in what I think with an inclusive vision, and I think that's another a very key word, inclusive. Well, before I let you go, I mean, and, and um, I was you, you raised something, and, I, and then it. And some I thought about the book where you you had talked about traveling all over the world and yep. and um and having been in South Africa doing you know, when they had the first uh fair elections yep uh, but you know I was struck in the book about his experience in paris yeah and i and i you know I've spent a fair amount of time in paris and i you know the area and i and I was thinking. It, it, and I sort of raised the question, not trying to answer it, so that's why it, I'm, I'm the host and you're the guest. I'll just ask you the question, you can answer it. So, <laughs> but, but, but is there, a, is there a sense, did you get the feeling there was a sense perhaps where that, ex, that Baltimore experience never ever leaves? I mean, just no matter, if we look at him as a correspondent, uh, for Atlantic Magazine and now, uh, MacArthur Fellow. Uh, I mean, but, but, but this is still part of that Baltimore experience growing up where you, it just never leaves you. You, you find that, I mean, just not exclusive to coats, but with some of the, send me some of the black men that you, that you worked with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think, I think fundamental to, uh, to who we are that, um, we, 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 we carry, our experiences, we carry our hurts, we carry our pains, we carry our hopes with us, um, and uh, they shape how we, we experience the world. And um, I think that was also evident in his uh, experience in Paris. Um, one time I, uh, in 19, I think it was about 1984, I got on an airplane in New York City to fly to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And it was... Uh, Argentine National Airline, and I was the only black person on the plane. And uh, it was a very long flight. And um, even though I spoke, uh, partly spoke Spanish, I, I don't think that uh, any passenger on that plane said a word to me. Um, and the airline hostesses or stewardesses um, spoke to me only because they had to as a passenger. And I felt 
in that airline, that flight, a profound sense of my own race and in relationship to the people who live in Argentina. Then I went to Argentina and I discovered that they had more or less exterminated African people in Argentina. And um, I realized that uh, what I had sensed on that airplane ride was accurate. In other words, I was taking the experience of growing up in Bedford-Stavison as a young black boy mm-hmm. on that airplane with me. It shaped my sensibilities. It shaped how I experienced what was going on around me. And more often than not, we are often um, we often feel like if we shouldn't trust what it is we're feeling. Oh, no, 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 that's not why we didn't talk to you. But I felt a profound alienation from the people who were on that plane. They were they didn't know what to do with my presence. Your mere presence. Yes. My mere presence as a black man on that plane. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to speak to it or interact with it. And the reason for that had to do with their own experiences in history with African people. So I, I think I think it's absolutely true that uh, he takes Baltimore with him. And it shapes how he sees what and experiences what he what he's a part of. So what should if if America is to be America again, I think someone said that prior to me, but uh, <clears throat> but what should we do with this uncomfortable personal polemic going forward as a, as a nation, collective? What should, what should we do if, if you well, had your way? I think we have to place it in context. I mean, that's what I think. I think um, it has always been the case that in the African-American community, we have had multiple voices, and the Ta-Nehisi Coates does not represent the totality of the African-American um voice articulating our experience and so i think i think we have to see it in kind i mean another way that i have said in the past is that we needed martin and malcolm right i've said that class before i remember that yeah yeah <laughs> so, so 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 we need we need Coates's voice in the way that he articulates it and puts it out there because um surely there are other voices and uh I really think we have to keep it in, in the context of understanding that we are a part of an ongoing project that requires our attention, and um, and it requires our diverse uh, voices. And um, I think if we keep that in context of that, that larger context, I think it's it will be a lot easier to hear voices that um that 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 disrupt us in the way that I think Coates disrupts us it's a lot easier to hear those voices and and to begin to think about okay now you know what are the implications for that um if if it is the case that you have people in our society who 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 grew up in a world in which they are aware that the the vision and dream that has been created for them is not one that necessarily includes them. Okay, that that the mirage that is placed before them 
to reach for is one that they ought to continually question and um and that and that the degree to which uh we learn to do that is the degree to which we will eventually be able to construct something different construct something new construct something more just and humane that is inclusive of all of all people that's the dream uh, Dr. Cummings, um, it's, it's, it's been a pure joy. I want to thank you uh, for being on the public rally today. You're welcome, brother. Um, good luck. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Stay tuned as we continue our discussion on Between the World and Me with Professor Ethel Smith. My next guest is Ethel Smith. Smith is an associate professor at West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. Let's begin because uh, at, at the time of this broadcast, uh, Between Me and the World just uh, won the National Book Award. With all, I know. With, what a lovely day to be talking about it. Exactly. With all, with all its other accolades already. Um, so through your lens as a literary scholar, why do you think this book has garnered so much attention? Well... Okay, number one, Toni Morrison. <laughs> that's a good okay. start. No, that's a very good start. We should all be so lucky. That's an excellent start. What she did in that with that book in terms of her review is great and rare. She doesn't often review books. At, you know, I, I can. I think I remember one other book that she reviewed or blurred maybe. Um, so that's one thing. But I also think people have been expecting something big from Ta-Nehisi Coates for a long time. And I remember the first time I encountered him, he was on Melissa Harris Paris show. And I was so impressed, I became very curious about him. So I started, you know, Googling him and that kind of thing. And then from there, I read uh, My Beautiful Struggle and, you know, then just sort of kept reading the pieces that he was writing in The Atlantic. So I don't think that anybody is really surprised that this is his moment. Uh, I think that piece on reparations, I, I think that clinched it. Uh, that was just so powerful and so needed. Um, and I think this book, I, I was looking, I was thinking about another book. Do you know the book, The Fire This Time by Randall Kennan? Yes, yes. So I, I taught that book one time, and Randall was a friend of mine. And I think that Randall tried to channel um, Baldwin. Uh, he didn't as much as this book is, but he did a fine job with the book. I, I like that book very much. But this book is very much uh, in the tradition, don't you think, of Baldwin. And when uh, I think one of the questions you asked was um, about the black image, the black body. Well, that's, well, well that, that's, a, that's a perfect segue. I mean, the actual uh, the question is, 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 is to talk about Coates' use of the body to tell absolutely. his story. Well, the thing is, we often see black bodies used in, in, in literature, whether we're talking about the slave narratives. Uh, John Lewis, for an example, says uh, it, when he was marching for the Civil Rights Movement, our bodies became a testament of our cause. And I think that our bodies have always been, you know, the dogs on uh, us, the lynching, the hanging. Uh, in uh, an American lyric by Claudia Rankin, she uses the body images as well. So I think it's a very common image. It's an image within the tradition. I think sometimes for me, uh, one of my only 
little tweaks of it. I think he overdoes it sometimes. Sometimes more is less is more. So sometimes I think he overdoes the body images. Uh, but it's very clear, and it's very. Uh, we know that he's read. We mm-hmm. know that he's read all these books, and he. This is a com- a coming together of what he's read and what he's lived. Is the way that I feel about it. Now, this is the uh, final segment that I'm doing. I've actually done several other segments with several white scholars and several African-American scholars, and all the same questions um, to talk about this book because this book, quite frankly, has garnered so much attention, and, and, and rightfully so. So to you, Ethel, when you read um, about the Dreamers, who, 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 how did you take that? Who was he talking about? Oh, well, what he did, he took a script, and he did that several times, and he turned it upside down, okay? So we often think of the dreamers as Martin's dream and we're the, you know, the American dream. Well, he tells us that that dream isn't our dream. This dream is for people who think of themselves or call themselves as white because, as we know, race is a construct to keep people down or keep certain people in power uh, kind of thing. So I like what he does with the idea of the dreamers. Uh, he takes these stereotypes and he turns them upside down. That's very Toni Morrison-like to me, uh, what he does with that. Um, you, you know, dreamers are white people since the American dream is often a nightmare for African Americans. Uh, for African Americans, we don't have that. When he goes into the detail about the lawns and the cookouts and the nice kids out and how far out of reach that is for many of us. Um, in fact, African Americans probably are less well off than they were a few generations ago, you know, talking to my parents and their, their generation and that kind of thing, and they tell us. Um, so that's what I think he's talking about when he talks about the dreamers. They are dreaming. They take these stereotypes, and they fit into their dream. Uh, Here's an example, a more specific example of what I mean. Uh, I teach a literature class here, so um, a a colleague of mine wrote a memoir, and it's about her sister uh, ended up dying. She was raped. She she got uh, hooked on heroin, and anyway, ended up killing her. So my students could not believe this pretty white woman uh, very well educated, very well spoken, had had that experience. So after she left, we entered into a conversation about it, and they said she just doesn't seem the type. And I said, however, if I had told you that was my path, you wouldn't have any question with uh, with not believing it. So here again, the white people or the dreamers, because they have learned to buy into the stereotypes that they've dreamed up about us. That's how I think that he meant that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did I go round and round about with that? No, you know what? You know what? The way this works out, so I just I just sort of toss them up there, and you just whack at them however you want to whack at them. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of how this works here. You know? Okay, very good. <laughs> but 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 he's 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 turning the script. He's right. turning, yeah, he's flipping the script here, kind of thing, because people are going to say, "Oh, aren't black people the dreamers? Aren't we? Have we always dream? Yes, we have. But he's telling us that that American dream often doesn't work for us, mm-hmm. and 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 it's true. You know, we can think about it. You can take a a white kid, 
a black kid, send them to the same schools, send them to the same, they can live in the same neighborhoods. The outcome is probably going to be different. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. You know, one of the things that's so fascinating about, about this discussion and the reason I wanted to get into it was because, as I said before, I made a point to, to, to give everyone the same questions. Right, because that's when you get information, when you give everybody the same question. And, but, but the responses, since, since we're all, since everybody's involved in, 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 in literary, uh, to, at least everybody's liberal arts. So that means we have no exact answers here. But, right. it, but everybody is seeing it, you know, I have to tell you very, you know, very differently, and, and, and it's quite fascinating. So, so with that said, now, Here's my own bias. I've defined uh, between the world and me, at least in part, I've defined it as a personal polemic. That's how I see it. Well, I like that term that you use kind of thing. You could see it as that. You could see it as a manifesto. You can see it as a plea to stop killing our children, mm-hmm. stop being so racist. You know, you could see it as many things. But I, I like your definition very much. Uh and, well, 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 no, but here's but here's the interesting piece, though. Then let me just stay with that. It, 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 that you know, if one's perspective is valid, I, I really do believe that how you see it is valid. Just because if I may see it differently doesn't invalidate how you see it. And I think that's the power of a personal polemic. But but at the same time, though, race is so touchy. So whether you're the writer or the reader, even out of that personal polemic, when it comes to race. It's more difficult to really look at the book as what he's saying without us putting our own critique on it. Oh, absolutely. And 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 this is the problem I had with David Brooks' uh, 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 review of it. First of all, I don't know why he was called on to review the book. <laughs> this is not a book. You know, he he does the same thing that white people always do: tell you what it's like to be black. He starts off, he tells us about his father and how he came over. That has absolutely nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with this book whatsoever. That's your narrative, you know, and your narrative is not like my narrative. So I I just thought, why was this person called upon to give us the same bull uh, telling black people what it's like to be black and what they need to do uh, to succeed in life because look what happened to my father he came over he did this we're not them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i find that david brooks stuff well as i find him i used to think that he was reasonably smart i guess he is uh i always thought he was too smart for his politics uh, but i just found that review just useless now, well, you know it's, it's interesting because I, I think that um, uh, one thing that that, that Brooks says that I think that warrants us having a discussion. If, if, if you ex- if you can accept, and obviously you 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 just you do accept uh, the personal polemic observation as a, as a, as a right. possibility, and given one sense that Coates is writing to his son, right? He's not talking to Brooks. But but that conversation happens to be captured by Random House, so in a way he is talking to Brooks, and it raises an interesting question for me: uh, Does Brooks or anyone else, uh, for that matter, be they black or white, have standing if someone sees his personal polemic differently? Well, I I think he was doing more. Okay, I think he was talking to his son. Yes, yeah. 
But, okay, so before we get to Brooks, I think he was talking to all black boys, mostly. And then we get to the bigger population uh, kind of thing, which include Brooks. But the problem with the bigger population, folks like Brooks, they can't listen. They have to talk. <laughs> and, you, you know, it was I was just not surprised because I've read these kind of reviews before. But I, I think this book, just as Baldwin was doing for his son, I think I was just reading. I, I had not read any. I tried not to. I didn't read any of the reviews on Tana Hazy Coates' book before I talked to you. Except I did go on Amazon a minute ago and I looked at all of the um, one stars. You know, there's a thousand responses, right? Right, right. Thousand. So I just was curious about the one star people. Right. You mean one who gave who only gave the book one star? Absolutely. Okay. First of all, mostly they're men. And then they come off as so racist that it's boring, that it's poorly written. Okay, whatever you say about this book, you cannot say it's poorly written. <laughs> mm-hmm. That just doesn't cut water. That, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and you know, what the other person said, the only thing that was good about it was it's brevity, and it was like, okay. But that just tells me those people are outside. They can't they can't put, like one of the things I say to my students when I'm teaching literature, I know this is hard to do, but let's see if we can put aside our personal experience, our personal judgment, and just take the book as it is, the text as it is, and see what happens to them. But I don't think white Americans, and when I say this, it's a general kind of statement, I don't know if white Americans are capable of doing that because they have so decided. And the problem with generalities is that it insults individuals, so I apologize for that. They have decided that they know black people who black people are, and the reason black people are in the situation they're in is their own fault. So I think he is talking to those white people, but I think first he's talking to his son, secondly he's talking to other young black men, and other, well, probably men of color or poor, whatever kind of thing. And then it's the bigger uh, organization, the the bigger group of people kind of thing. But I think that David uh, Brooks was perhaps the last person that this book was written for, unless he was willing to embrace something about history. History is messy. In order to engage in history, I believe we have to have an open mind, first of all. And I think, secondly, we have to have a curiosity. There was no curiosity in David Brooks' assessment of the book. Well, I didn't find any. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, what I take from that. Well, I'm going to stay with books for just one more second. In his oh second, yeah, you, you just tell me when you want to. No, no, no. I'll, I know. We, we, I think we got a good rhythm here. I'm just tossing them up. You just whacking them out. We have a good rhythm here. We're, <laughs> we're doing fine. But, 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 you know, to your point though, I, I think you, you um, I have a quote here that really, really jumped out at me. Uh, it's, it's toward the beginning of the of, of Brooks's column. It says it is a mind-altering account of the of the male black experience. Absolutely. What mind-altering? <laughs> but it wasn't my, you know, I mean, I'm not saying neither good nor bad, but Coates' experience wasn't my experience growing up. So I, <laughs> no, well, okay, nor was it my experience, 
but I recognize it as a valid experience. Oh, absolutely. But I'm saying that's a, but, 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 but Brooks sort of makes it the, you know. Oh, oh, oh yeah. This is the biggest mind-blowing thing. Yeah. I, I have so many issues with Brooks. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, All right. But, um, but I, I will, I will go to, um, since, since you're, you're, um, my final um, uh, guest on, on talking about this book, and I've and I've uh, tried to uh, I've kept my cards to myself. But one of the things that sort of jumped out at me about the book was he talks very persuasively and passionately, you know, to his son about his experience, about his friend that, uh, by all accounts, was killed unnecessarily. Oh, Prince Jones. Yes, but at the same time. I found the the notion of his privilege missing from the critique, and what I mean, okay. and what yeah. I and what I mean by that is I want I want you I want to have you pitch this back at me. But what I mean by that is I he talks about the Baltimore experience, but everybody that comes out of Baltimore with that experience doesn't get to write for the Atlantic, and I and I, and I mean no disrespect by this. Oh no, absolutely. You know, and come with the fact that he did not graduate from Howard and he's writing for the Atlantic and, and, and he's published by Random House. I, th- I think at some point you have to acknowledge your own privilege and that I saw that lacking. I think so too, but take this for, I, I read that and I thought about that. Privilege is a complicated thing for black folks, okay? Uh, you know, I, I was listening to an interview with Will Smith one time and he said something that really struck me. Uh, they were asking him, and it was something about raising kids or the uh, what. And he says, yes, I am wealthy beyond anything I could have ever dreamed of. He said, but when you grow up a certain way, that privilege is much harder to accept. And I I thought about that uh, kind of thing. Think about people who, who grew up poor. Yes, Kayna Hazard Coates, far more privileged than James Baldwin. Uh and Baldwin had many more issues than Coates, it mm-hmm. seems to me, uh, when he went. But I think that privilege is hard to talk about. I think that in this text, he's dealing with his past uh, kind of thing. And there was no privilege in his past except books. So people don't often think of books as privilege, but that was that, that was the privilege that gave him the social passport, the passport, the educational passport. I think he uses the term social uh Passport out of the struggle, I think right. that term. I think you're right about that. Yeah, but that's the reading. That's the education. That was the privilege. But at the same time, if you grow up in a neighborhood like Coates, I think it stays with you. I think it stays with you, having to fight for your lunch, being a shy guy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that he... Yes, I think he's very privileged today. But I think the text is, you know, like when he and his wife go to Paris, you know. Right. Okay, so let me give you an example of my own personal kind of experience. I raised my son on my own, right? Uh Uh-huh. I I grew up in rural Alabama. We moved to Atlanta. Uh, I had no real resources, but I got my son into a boarding school. I got him into, he went to Wesleyan in Connecticut. He went to Harvard Divinity School. But when he comes out... He has student loans. He's not getting the jobs his wealthy friends are at. So he's not feeling very privileged. Bob, where I went to school, he's very privileged. So you see the difference? Right. What right. I'm trying to talk about? Right. I think privilege is very complicated for black people. Uh, I think right today, if he was writing, he could not write without denying his privilege. 
that I'm in Paris with my family for a year. You know, he had been before, but we all can go. We all can, you know, I travel all the time. Uh, it, it, it doesn't take the privilege. It takes the connections more so than anything else. And he's at the Atlantic. It's a well-connected place. When you write with the for the Atlantic, and especially as well as he does and as popular as he is, you're going to attract the attention of Random House. You're going to attract the attention of publishers and that kind of thing. Uh, whereby if you're a professor at West Virginia University, that's not going to happen, or it's not going to happen in that same way. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I don't hold it against him that he doesn't talk about his privilege, because, I, like I said, I think privilege can be a, a, a complicated, a double-edged sword for black people. And he, I, like, the whole idea when he was in Paris the first time and didn't have to check his back, didn't have to look at that lets you know how we grow up stays with us. Right. More so than where we end up. You, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm a college professor now, but I can remember a time that I wasn't. Right. I can remember a time when I had to go to the grocery store and, you know, I knew how many days it took the check to clear. Even though I don't have to do that today, but somehow or another that experience stays with me. I'm reminded of that. Okay. So, so I gave him a pass for that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm 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 gonna stay not with that purpose, but I'm, I'm gonna move it slightly. But I'm gonna stay on this theme because these are things I was struck with. Big, and now with you, I will put my cards on the table. <laughs> if, if, if no, if you if you if you eliminate if if you eliminated white privilege, the notion of white privilege from the planet, we would still have issues of male privilege, uh, so gender privilege, you know. Colors. Skin color privilege. Yeah, but yeah, right. There'll be all these. There'll all be multiplicity Absolutely. of privileges. Absolutely. And so, 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 I guess what I'm saying is writing such a powerful narrative and the absence of privilege. I mean, for I'll, I'll throw this out. I mean, there's a really small role in terms of women in this narrative. Well, okay, that's because he's a male. Now he speaks very loving of his wife. Uh huh. He speaks loving of his mother. His grandmother, his aunt. So there are women. You know, he 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 lets us know he could not have made it because if it had not been for his wife. And I think it was his mother who gave him a sense his his sensibility, uh, kind of thing. Uh, because the dad was, you know, from uh, my beautiful struggle was quite harsh, right. uh, kind of thing. But I think that he. He talks about women as much as any male writer does, uh, and I think the way I like the way he talks about his wife, I, I, I like that. What strikes me as odd is his love for Howard that he dropped out of. He he never tells us that story. Right. That's yeah. That's odd to me. Doesn't he speak of such love for the Mecca? Oh, he calls the Mecca. I, I, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Justice, and it was like. If you loved it so much, you know, I met my wife there, your uncle went there, your aunt went there. It Tony was, Morrison went there, there Thurgood Marshall Sterling went there. Brown went there. It's like, why in the hell didn't you graduate then? <laughs> that was a puzzle to me. He never addresses that. Well, you know, one of the things that I think that we've had a lively discussion here, but I think one of the things that I think was really um, what is powerful about the book is that you and I can talk about it now, and we don't have to see it identical, but it is such a, it's a rich, it's so rich that it creates multiple, uh, multiple possibilities of what the writer is actually writing about. 
Well, you know what else? It, this is how it's like James Baldwin. It is so honest, and it's his honesty. It may not be mine. It may not be yours. But when he talks about that whole section of shame, right? that is, when have you heard somebody talk about shame before with regards to themselves? Right. And, and, you know, how he was shamed and how his wounds were so of the old ways. He was so tied to them. That's very honest. You know, if I teach them, um, I don't teach slave narrative classes anymore unless I go out of the country because here, so let's say there's 30 students in my class. Let's say three African-Americans, the rest of them are white or something else. The African-American students are embarrassed. The white students are in defense. That we didn't call, and it was like, stay with the text, please. <laughs> this happened during this time. But if you're a white student, you benefit today from that system. The least you can do is learn about it. If you are a black student, you own slavery. Own it. It's yours. Take what's yours. Take what you need from it. Stop being embarrassed by it. You didn't do it. So it's such a painful kind of experience to teach the slave narratives. I just stopped doing it years ago. You know, but it, wouldn't you, um, I'll just throw it out there, that we have as Americans embraced a false narrative of the American history. So, oh, absolutely. So when, so when you're, so when you're, when the, the actual narrative is thrust upon you, it's difficult to uh, take because it, it's so counter to the false narrative that we've, that we've embraced. Absolutely. Just like my students embracing the idea who's a drug addict. You know what I mean? It, it was like not a pretty white girl, young and mm -hmm. sophisticated. And you know what I mean? It, it, where's Blay is like, yeah, but that's exactly right. We have embraced over the years. And, of course, we have because it's been fed to us from every media outlet that there is. It's been fed to us. So of, um, before I let you go, where is, is this a critical narrative uh, in, in literary lore? I think so. I, I, I think it will be right up there with, with, with Baldwin. Think about this. We have a lot more black people writing and receiving prizes uh, than ever before, which is a good thing. But then we have to raise the question, what are they writing about? What, what will hold out? What will be a classic? I think, I think this is the beginning for him. And he deserves this moment, you, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised at all from the first time I heard him speak. And we don't have many race people, race men these days, you know, if you think about the 60s kind of thing. I think he definitely falls into that category. You know, we have a lot of race superstars <laughs> as professors. You, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, a couple people jumped in mind when you said that, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, yeah, that, that was a nice, yeah, that, that, that's my nicest way of saying it uh, kind of thing. But, yeah, but he is a race man. Mm -hmm. He is a race man of today. But but think about that. Who, who, who else can we identify as a race man? Well, a lot of people don't think of him as a race man. I do. Well, you, you know, I, I would I would throw in there that he's a race man in a 21st century context. He, I mean, he's not exactly. He's not exactly. He's not Baldwin circa 1963. He's not Baldwin. He's not Amir Baraka. He's no. none of those people. No. He is a race man for today. Right. 
Right. That's that's what I mean exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I and I and I and I definitely uh, uh, see him as that um, Eleanor Morgan Smith. I want to thank you so much for being Ethel Morgan place. Smith. Ethel, did I say Eleanor? I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have an aunt named Eleanor, and I'm. I'm you know. yeah. Let's no, this is great. Thank you. I hope I gave you some insight on my take of the book. But I, no, I really think it's great. It's powerful. It's honest, and I don't really hold it against him about the class stuff. I I'm curious about his love for Howard. To me, that didn't that and and he, I, I thought that he overused the body image, but that's what he was doing, beating it to you, beating it at, you know what I mean? Right. That well, was his goal. Eltha Morgan Smith, I want to thank you for being on the public rally today. And that's our show for today. We'll take a break for the holidays and come back with an all-new show on Tuesday, January 5th. In the meantime, please enjoy a rebroadcast of previous shows for the next few weeks. The Public Rally is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Happy Holidays.